conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the CEO and founder of Gem, Georgia Danos. This conversation is essentially a marketing masterclass. One of Georgia's earliest roles was at Remedy Kombucha. Now, we all know what kombucha is today, but keep in mind this was 2014 before the brand was even on Instagram. So Georgia's job wasn't just to build the brand's social media presence. She was more or less responsible for bringing the product to mainstream recognition. After helping to launch the brand in the UK, Georgia had well and truly caught what she refers to as the startup bug. And this is where her story gets really interesting. Rather than identifying a gap for a product and then deciding to launch a brand to fill it, Georgia first decided she wanted to start a business of her own and then identified that gap. Where she landed was the oral care sphere. Given that beauty was and remains so saturated, she found space for a product at the intersection of beauty and health and wanted to develop a product that had a daily, or in this case upwards of twice daily, touch point with consumers. Georgia launched Gem, an Australian-made premium natural oral care brand in March 2020 following four years of product development. The brand has since been picked up by both Mecca and Woolworth stores nationally, has extended its product ranges to over 30 SKUs and is launching into Boots in the UK next week. In this conversation, Georgia shares how she and her team managed to educate without fear-mongering, which is no mean feat in this industry, how she got her brand on the shelves at Mecca, Woolworths and Boots, and how she got her product's entire first run of packaging for free. You're the eldest of four, grew up here in Melbourne, so let's start right at the very beginning. What is your earliest memory of beauty? Oh, my earliest memory of beauty... Look, I would say one of my earliest memories is being in kindergarten, kinder three, so I was about three years old, mm-hmm. and being on the mat and having a negotiation with a couple of girls on one girl had a specific sparkly headband. Yeah. And all of us wanted the different coloured sparkles that were coming off. Yes. And I just remember thinking, this is sort of a negotiation on how, you know, we can get. <laughs> It sounds ridiculous. (laughs) It doesn't. (laughs) It absolutely does not. But it was my first sort of like insight into beauty and like sparkles and sort of just beautiful objects that were almost aesthetic and materialistic. Mm -hmm. I love that it was an answer that's different from, oh, watching my mum put on lipstick. Because as much as I love that answer because I can relate, it's nice to have something a little different. (laughs) Look, I'm quite low-key in my beauty routine and I think I get that from my Mm mum. We basically just have our staples, a good foundation, a good blush and then a good winged eyeliner. Uh, But I do remember her specifically with her specific um, little palette of eyeshadow with the brown shade, always putting it on and smudging it in the mirror. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? 
From an early um, negotiation, that sounds like a lawyer <laughs> yeah, ready yeah. to go. I definitely, three. I definitely wanted to do law. I was interested in. I watched a lot of TV when I was younger, and I loved the show CSI. Yep. And so I wanted to be a criminal investigator. That is such a specific want right? for a young person. But then I sort of figured out I needed a law degree and a medical degree, mm. and I just thought, you know what, it's just too hard. It was a lot of study. A lot of study. A lot of study. If research serves me, you started working in a bookshop when you were around 14. I did. When you were in high school, did you have any idea of what you wanted to do professionally once we've dropped the idea of doing two simultaneous (laughs) degrees? Well, it was actually I did um, work experience at a, a barrister's firm. Yeah. And having that experience when I was 17, I really sort of understood what being a lawyer was about Mm -hmm. and that kind of gave me real insight into what I didn't want to do. Yeah. So I shifted focus there. But when I was 14, you know, I worked in a bookshop. It was a Saturday job. I just liked reading, to be honest. Yeah. And I loved sort of getting out of my world and doing something a bit productive Mm. on the weekend. And then I transitioned into modelling and um, worked in that industry for a couple of years, ended up going overseas, went to London. Yes. Okay, so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about modelling. Obviously a very visual industry. Yeah. You'd have been working with so many hair and makeup artists. Obviously this is a podcast about beauty. How do you feel that your time as a model has kind of shaped or affected your take on the beauty industry or even just your approach to beauty day to day? So what I loved about modelling was that at a very young age it almost thrust me into this professional industry and Mm -hmm. I sort of had to grow up fairly quickly the fact that I was 17, 18, living overseas, living in London. And I think what I loved about it was I just connected with these people sort of on an individual level Mm -hmm. through work. And I think, yes, you learn all the tips and tricks and, you know, great kind of makeup secrets to put a bit of highlighter on your top lip. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget. Yeah. And the power of a good kind of bronzing brush, Mm -hmm. all that. Um, But it really shaped the person I am today. And I honestly feel like it shaped my brand, Gem, Mm. and my focus on having a beauty-specific brand, regardless of the category that I was entering. Mm. Still on your time in London, obviously you modelled there. I know you spent time working in marketing there as well, which we will get to. Yes. You've obviously done a lot of travel since then. You've just come back from a trip. You're going on another one next (laughs) week. Have you noticed any major differences in the ways that women approach beauty from region to region? Um, Yes, definitely. I think it's interesting when you compare Europe and the US. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the way that the globalization of technology yeah. has brought the world together. So I think five, ten years ago before Instagram and before TikTok, it was a very different space. Mm. I remember going to a kind of beauty conference in Bologna, Cosmoprov in Italy almost yeah. ten years ago now. And then recently seeing images of some of the brands that have started coming up and being exhibited at the same expo. There's a significant change mm-hmm. from back then to now. So I do think that sort of the globalization of the world and Instagram and technology bringing everything together has impacted it. Mm. Uh, but I also think that there will always be changes dependent on the region. I think the best way for anyone that's listening that isn't 
in the beauty industry, the best kind of comparison is if you look at fashion and the way, you know, magazines that were being published in the US and the EU, we would get those trends kind of trickled down to Australia seasons, years later. Not the case now. 100%. Because it's all just in front of you. Well, and they used to say Australia sits five years behind the US and the UK and now that timeline is getting shorter and shorter. Yeah. I mean, it would have to. Yeah. So you studied arts. What did you major in? What were your plans from there? So I did arts. I did sociology and criminology. Yep. Okay. So we're still in sort of CSI territory. exactly. (laughs) And honestly, it was like watching TV. Mm -hmm. Like I always say to people... If you don't know what you want to do in your life, do an arts degree Yeah. because if anything, it will just gear you up to have good conversation with people at a dinner party. Mm. And that's one of the most important things in life, really, yeah. just being able to maintain conversation. Totally agree. So it was great for me. And there'd be a lot of people who don't know what they want to do at that's 17, 18. Like it's a crazy amount of pressure. I mean, I certainly didn't think that I would be a toothpaste entrepreneur. No, but who does? Right? <laughs> Exactly. Prior to launching your brand, you were working in marketing and I think social media for Remedy Kombucha. I would love to hear more about this because it was around 2014 that you were introduced to the team. We all know what kombucha is now, but a very different time then. So how did you go about kind of helping to bring it to the mainstream? So when I was approached by Remedy or when we sort of when we sort of acknowledged Remedy's existence really, mm. it was this random mushroom drink that yep. they were selling for $5.50 and we were promising all these sort of health benefits mm-hmm. and there was no real mainstream understanding on the power of kombucha and microbiome. Yeah. But what we really had to do was educate the mainstream on the power of the microbiome mm-hmm. and so it really, you know, it really helped me independently in my understanding of the power of oral microbiome and um, the microbiome in general and its overall connection to sort of health and wellness and beauty. Mm. But when I literally, I I approached them and I was like, I know social media, you Mm -hmm. guys don't have a platform, you know, you're trying to sell to the mainstream. Oh my God, that's so crazy. Sorry to interrupt just to think that there was a time when a brand wasn't on social media. That was the thing. And I mean, that was really my competitive advantage going yeah. into the role. I was sort of like, you know, if you hire me, I will get you to 10,000 followers by December. Yep. And if I don't hit that target, sayonara. Bye. Like, all good. Because there was this huge kind of opportunity that they were missing yep. just by being in traditional media. This is, sorry, I'm just having a like an out of body experience because this is less than 10 years ago. The thought of going up to a brand now and saying, you guys aren't on social media. What? I know. And now, I mean, brands have their opportunity because of social yeah. media. Some brands are native to the digital yeah. landscape and social media is their only form of marketing. So for Remedy, you know, at that time they were quite a boutique brand. They mm-hmm. were only in independent kind of mum and dad whole food markets and they yeah. were really they had their sights on big supermarket. And if you want to break into the mainstream, you need to be where people are and people are online. Mm -hmm. You helped launch the brand into the UK as well. How, if at all, did the UK launch strategy differ from that of Australia? We took a very similar approach. So when I went over to the UK, I was about 25. I had had 
amazing experience at Remedy in Australia. Mm-hmm. I literally started at Remedy when there was like four people in the company. Yeah. And when I left, I think there was about 35. Wow. So I basically took a lot of the learnings that were made in Australia and we approached the market in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. We believe that there is quite a similar consumer from Australia to the UK. Yeah. And we basically started with influencer marketing, brand partnerships, product seeding, getting it almost into the hands of the right people Mm -hmm. and just really had a holistic approach to marketing. So making sure that we were kind of everywhere and anywhere and we were really front of mind to the consumer. Mm -hmm. Let's talk gem, which sounds like I'm talking about myself in the third person. (laughs) What order did things happen in? Did you decide you wanted to create something of your own or had you identified that specific gap for an oral care brand? Which kind of order did things take shape in? So I knew I wanted to launch a business. I definitely caught the startup bug when I was working at Remedy. I hear this is very easy to catch. Yes, it (laughs) is. It's very easy to catch. And it's also very important that you, I always say to people, have experience working in a small business Mm -hmm. so you can understand the complexities of owning your own business. Because it's very glamorous from the outside, but once you're on the inside, it is tough. Having that experience just from where I sit is less and less common because people are just seeing these amazing founder stories and going, yeah, I'll do that. It's so important Mm. to even intern or just dip your toe in the water at a small business because you really get visibility over the whole dimension of Mm. running your own business. So I, I knew I wanted to launch something and I didn't know what it was and I was thinking, 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 what can I launch? I wanted to engage with my consumer every day Mm -hmm. and I thought, what do people do every day? They brush their teeth. Yep. And then I looked at the toothpaste category specifically and I saw lots of brands that were heritage, almost stale, kind of archaic and I basically thought, you know, There is space for a new millennial brand to come in to disrupt the market. I knew it had to be in the better for you space. At the time I was living in LA and it was just non-negotiable. I couldn't put out a product that had ingredients like triclosan and titanium dioxide, common ingredients that are found in mainstream toothpaste today. So I knew it had to be better for you. It had to have a sustainability lens and it had to look premium that so customers were essentially proud to showcase the product on their bathroom mm. vanity. Which is a first in that space. That's the thing. I mean, people, they hide their oral care products and they dread going to the dentist. Yeah. So it's all sort of correlated. Mm. This might be a broad question, but those ingredients you've mentioned, why should we be using a natural toothpaste as opposed to the alternative? So in my research, and this is like three, four, five years going back, I identified a couple of ingredients that we now call the nasty nine in Mm -hmm. a lot of our brand terminology. Yeah. And some of those ingredients are things like triclosan, which is an ingredient that's actually been banned in hand soap. You can still find it in mainstream toothpaste. That's wild that it's... Okay, yeah. And the idea is... Right? So the idea is you're spitting all of these ingredients out. But you're actually ingesting them yeah. through your mucous membrane walls. You know, there's a reason why at the back of mainstream toothpastes there is a call the poison centre immediately if you ingest this. Yeah. So <laughs> that'll do it. Right. And, 
you know, when I started Gem, I couldn't understand why natural toothpaste wasn't more popular until I tried a lot of the natural toothpaste on the market. But they, I mean, aside from like the experience of use and the efficacy, I, if being a visual person myself, I'm not drawn to something that's in this like bamboo packaging with a leaf that on it. That was the other thing. So yeah. it was sort of two dimensions. So the actual product performance missed the mark for me. Uh-huh didn't foam up properly, it wasn't minty enough, it tasted a bit gritty. Yep. And then often these kind of hippy-dippy natural brands were yeah. often packaged in kind of brown paper bag boring packaging. Mm-hmm. So I sort of saw the gap in the market. So where did you go from there? It's one thing to identify the gap but then how did you find the right manufacturer, source packaging, land on the right design, so on and so forth. There are so many steps to take you from the idea through to the product being available? So I basically started with research. Yep. I spent a lot of time in LA at, at Neuhaus reading up on all these kind of different research papers, you know, from the first toothpaste ever invented mm-hmm. by the ancient Egyptians that used, you know, eggshells in yep. its formulation to reading up on vitamins in toothpaste and actually learning about, you know, we don't actually ingest these vitamins when we're brushing our teeth, so making the decision to leave that out. But I basically spent, you know, quite a substantial amount of time just understanding kind of the literature. Yeah. And I spoke to lots of dentists. So I spoke to a dentist specifically, Dr. Lewis Ehrlich, who's mm-hmm. based in Sydney, and he talked a lot about the oral microbiome, which yep. was sort of, you know, sparked yeah, up Yeah, full circle. Exactly, because obviously my time at Remedy... And he talked about the importance of the oral microbiome and the addition of an oral probiotic in its ability to enhance the environment of the oral microbiome. And he spoke specifically about an oral probiotic called Lactobacillus salivaris. Just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I then made the decision to include that ingredient in my toothpaste which is a great point of difference for us now because we're one of the only brands that has that oral probiotic piece in the toothpaste. Maybe another broad, maybe a very specific question, but what does that do? I would pronounce it myself, but I would hate (laughs) to show off. Um, The inclusion of the oral probiotic fosters a symbiotic balance of bacteria in the mouth Uh to enable overall kind of oral well-being, which we've found to be a direct link to overall health and wellness. Love it. How long did that process take from sort of having the concept through to launch? Took about four years. See, that doesn't surprise me because yeah. there's a there's a lot to it. Yeah. So I started in 2016. Yeah. Started, I, that's sort of where my idea was sparked. Yep. And it basically took me four years to get the brand from inception to production. This doesn't surprise me because I feel like most, this is sort of bridging the gap between health and beauty from my perspective as a consumer of the brand. Most beauty brands I'm finding are taking minimum two years to develop. So four years, it's not an overnight success. It doesn't work like that. And I mean, toothpaste is a very, very tricky category to get into. There's a reason why there's not so many competitors. Yep. There's a high barrier to entry. Yeah. It is difficult. I mean, there's a lot of 
reasons why natural toothpaste doesn't taste as good as non-natural mm. and it costs generally double the price because the ingredients are expensive. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time really understanding what are the ingredients that I need to take out, but more importantly, what are the ingredients that I'm going to replace mm. them with? You launched with one skew. I'm yes. always fascinated by founders who choose to do this because it's a gamble. I'm mm. all for like doing one thing and doing it really well, but yeah. if that product doesn't perform or it doesn't land, that's that's the business gone. No, totally. When you launched March 2020? Yep. Literally Just pre-COVID. At the start of the, yeah. There it is. The global pandemic. It was crazy. What was the reception like on launch? Was it you know, was there hype from the get-go or was it a slow burn? We had a very interesting journey. Um, and, I mean, look, this is the nature of just launching your own business. Problems happen every day. Yeah. I was so excited for my launch. You know, I've been working on this for four years. Mm-hmm. We have, like, narrowed down the packaging. We've been working on this for so long. I flew up to Sydney to see the first production run. Mm-hmm. I get to the production line. I pick up the toothpaste. I turn it over. There is a massive gap between two of the paragraphs. And I remember thinking, this isn't right. And we ended up following it up with QC who alerted us that they had incorrectly printed 10,000 units of the toothpaste with no warning label. Okay. So I was naturally a wreck. Yeah. But the plus side was that we had our first production run delivered free. Oh, so from the get-go, we had 10,000 units, which we sold through our website, we handed out as samples, and we effectively moved through that stock with no inventory cost. Well, there's a silver lining. It was, but at the time I was devastated. Of course, your stomach would just drop. Yeah, completely. But I had a lot of support from friends and family. I mean, it was just myself in the business for the first year and a half. Mm. And I focused a lot on sampling. It was COVID, right? So I was literally at my parents' house, packing orders, getting it out to friends and fam. And me and my designer, we literally started working on the rebrand, I think two weeks before we launched the packaging. Oh, my God. We're going to talk rebrand shortly. On launch, there's obviously an education piece involved too, particularly with oral care as opposed to, say, something like a lipstick. I feel like with oral care people are maybe that bit more brand loyal. There's a lot more thought that kind of goes into getting someone to convert. How did you go about educating consumers on what you were doing without it coming across as pushy? So I think that's a really interesting question. And, you know, I'm three years into my brand and this is something that we face almost every day still. We're still educating the mainstream market and it's really important for us not to come across as greenwashing. Yeah. um, And almost like kind of scaring the market as well. So I think we're very open and honest in our messaging and we present all the facts without sort of putting pressure on consumers. I always say to people the best way to try the product is just to get it in your hand and put it in your mouth because we have like quite a a sticky customer. We've got quite a high customer retention rate, which is great. Mm -hmm. So, But it's really difficult because, as you said, you know, people have been blind shopping their toothpaste for 20, 30 years and it's all about intercepting that habit. Mm. But if you get them once, then they're in. You find, yeah. The brand has 
since extended to a full product line. You've yes. got the whole dental routine kind of covered, different flavours, best electric toothbrush of all time. Thank you. Dead said it is the greatest. And I'm a real teacher's pet as well. When my dentist was like, you need to start using an electric toothbrush, you had just launched yours. And that was in the mail within about 35 seconds of him saying that. Available at Terry White Kmart. There you go. Plug. (laughs) How does that product development process work for you? Are you constantly thinking about what might come next? Are you working off consumer demand or is it a little of both? Yes. I think another great question I'm constantly thinking six to 12 months ahead. Yeah. And, you know, while it started with the oral care range, I had this vision for toothpaste. I was going to go up against the big guys. I quickly learned that being a premium natural toothpaste company is very tricky. Sure. Because the margins are very slim. Mm-hmm. So I then shifted focus and looked at what can I create with higher margin capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at electric toothbrushes and my process for a new product is I basically, I source the product and then I essentially go on this sampling process where I can sample up to, I think, 85 different variations on a product before I'm happy with something. Yep. Because the thing is, you know, and and what I learned from all of my packaging rebrands, I know we will touch on that, (laughs) but you sort of want to get it right from the start. Otherwise, it's a massive, massive headache. Yeah. And I was always in such a rush, like on this, you know, fast paced, let's do it. Let's just fix it later. Go, go, go. And now I'm at the point in my life where I'm like, you know what, actually take your time, get things right and do things from the start properly and then you'll be much, you'll be in a much better position going forward. There's the segue. Let's talk about the art of the rebrand. You launched yes. as Gemkind. Yes. You've gone through a few iterations of the packaging. What prompted those rebrands and what do you think is the trick to rebranding well? So we launched as Gemkind because we essentially got the trademark for Gemkind. Yeah. And we basically put Gemkind on our Instagram. Mm-hmm. And so the brand quickly became known as Gemkind, even though it was almost always Gem. Yep. So for us to get the gem.au Instagram handle took almost a year. Mm-hmm. So that was a nightmare. <laughs> and um, then we, look, I had this idea for my tiger packaging it was all about the ferocity of nature. Yes, I remember this packaging and vividly. Yes. I'm As a Richmond Tigers supporter, I was so into it. <laughs> so it was supposed to symbolise the ferocity of nature, you know, tying into the understanding that natural products don't often work and there's a perception in the market that natural products aren't as effective yep. as is. So, you know, who's fierce in the natural world? A tiger. So it was great from a brand perspective, not so great from a visual aesthetic perspective. Sure. It's a bit like when you tell a joke, but then you have to explain the joke. You're like, (laughs) okay, this has taken me more time. Yeah, (laughs) totally. So thankfully my first run was essentially free. Yeah. And we basically used the second, third and fourth product iterations Mm -hmm. to iterate on the packaging. Yeah. So when we introduced new flavours, my designer, my cousin, basically said to me, gee, you're using a peach colour and a tiger. It's got no correlation to (laughs) flavour or to really anything. Mm -hmm. You need to change it. And so what we did was we introduced 
three new flavours of the toothpaste. We put our mint in that sort of blue colour. Mm-hmm. We moved the tiger down so he slowly kind of <laughs> <faded. It's> just <laughs> edging back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we basically slowly killed him. Yeah. Until the full rebrand last year in Feb. I mean, I hadn't thought about I must have had every version of the packaging but I hadn't considered that the slow <laughs> moving down of the tie it's that meme of Homer Simpson just backing right, into, the, into bush. the bush yeah exactly yeah you launched the brand online yeah. you were picked up by Mecca less than a year yes post launch how did you go about making that happen Look, I basically stalked the Mecca buyer, who yeah. I now call a friend, Guinevere. She's so yep. gorgeous. She's since moved on. But she um, she really took a chance on a young female entrepreneur. And I think, you know, that's one of the key things about Mecca. They they really do support local young female entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. which was really special. And Mecca really gave us a platform in which to introduce our brand and almost legitimise our brand to the mass market. From other people who've been on the podcast Mecca respond pretty well to being stalked as well. Yes. And that's how Joe got Nas in there. So yeah. I mean, look, they get it. Every retailer generally works well with being stalked. Yeah. It's all about persistence and it's that kind of age-old thing, never take no for an answer. Yeah. Because if you went once and they said, oh, the timing's not right and then you just dusted your hands of it, okay. No, that's the thing. And also the timing might be not be right, the product not be right, might not be right. You need to listen to feedback and almost adapt what yeah. you've got going on to the market because mm-hmm. ultimately both you and the retailer want the product to sell. Yeah. More recently the brand was picked up by Woolworths. Yes. Which is wild. And then listening to you now talking about how you wanted to kind of edge in on those brands that people were just buying because, oh, that's branding that I know, let's get it in there. Like yeah, wild. Woolworths and Mecca though, two very different retailers. Why the decision to be stocked by both? For us, it's always been about accessibility. Yeah. So at the end of the day, if you're not on shelf, you don't exist to the customer. And, you know, why can't premium, better for you oral care products be available to everyone? Mm-hmm. We were stocked, we are stocked at Mecca Online, um, and that was a great distribution channel. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, you can't reach that many people when you're in one retailer online only. Mm-hmm. Everybody shops at Woolies and Coles. Yeah. Everybody buys this toothpaste from the supermarket and the pharmacy. I'm under no misconception. I'm not trying to sell, you know, a premium lip gloss or a premium moisturiser. We sell a commodity. And mm-hmm. I think in my brand journey, what I've understood or what I've come to understand is that accessibility is everything, especially when you're in this space. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear about the pop-up space too. Why is having that kind of physical presence that you have full agency over important to you and important to the brand? So the pop-up was honestly a such an opportunistic experience yep. in COVID. My husband and I, we were doing our kind of daily walk with our dog in the morning and yep. I was saying to him, you know, I'd love to have a pop-up. I'd, I love the idea of a potential customer coming in, feeling, smelling, tasting and seeing the product in real life. Yeah. And he basically looked up and said, well, what about that space over there? Oh, my God. And it was just one of those moments and kind of opportunities in time where, you know, I reached out. It really, it ended up working. Mm-hmm. And nothing, like not much else was going on in COVID. No. So we really channeled all of our energies into building the store. And you've used it 
a few different ways. It was yeah. a sweet shop, then yes. it became kind of a grocery for the supermarket yeah. launch. It's really evolved and it's been great to see how the pop-up and the space can evolve as our brand evolves mm. as well. You know, when when we launched the um the sweet shop, customers were coming in and saying, Oh, I thought this was a bakery and I thought this was a cake shop and I sort of turned to them and said, well, would you be coming in here if you thought it was a toothpaste store? Maybe not. Perhaps not. So, you know, we've had lots of fun with the pop-up. It's been a great experience. On the digital front, can we touch on the brand's social media strategy? Obviously, the landscape has changed a great deal from 2014 and explaining to brands, oh, you should think about being on social media. Totally. The gem... TikTok account is producing <laughs> quite literally some of my favourite content on the oh internet at the moment. How do you and your team go about strategizing but keeping it really, it feels really fresh and organic and like we talked about before, it doesn't feel pushy. Yeah, thank you. I love it. It's honestly been such an eye-opener, TikTok. It's really presented this whole new wave of marketing and yeah. the way, you know, traditional marketing has just gone completely out the window. Yep. And gone are the days of, you know, investing in content and beautiful pictures and that you kind of flow through your Instagram. Now this is all about really communicating with your customer and almost people don't want to follow a brand. They yeah. want to follow a person. Yeah. And so for us, it's all about really making myself and Lily known she's a hoot she's incredible she's so funny and she's really I've given her so much authority and she's really taken the role and just run with it and she's been so amazing she really is incredible but we need to you know we dedicate time yeah we have almost a one hour every day kind of strategy session on tiktok Mm -hmm. and then we allocate half the day on friday to filming so it's very time consuming, but it's very so worth rewarding. it because every time a new video pops up, I'm like, I'm in, which is <laughs> not always the case. It's fun, it's, you know. It's I, fun to watch. I say to my team, like, if anything, TikTok has just given us such an opportunity to have a good time at work yeah. and just laugh and be silly, hmm. not take life and the brand too seriously. It's a shame not everyone in the comments understands that not everything <laughs> is to be taken seriously. The one where it was like, oh, I, I got tipsy and posted this oh to the brand God, account and then hilarious. the comment, yeah, I loved it. And then the comments are like, this is irresponsible. <laughs> It is embarrassing. <laughs> we always um, laugh because I, you know, I check in with my board every quarter mm. and they ask for marketing updates and, you know, I, I mentioned we had a video go viral on TikTok and we had almost 3 million follow- uh, views and it was incredible. Mm-hmm. And the response was, so is the product in it? No. Was the brand in it? No. I mean, if but you look at the username, Lily yes. Got drunk. Yeah. And it was really hilarious. So it's all about, It's still eyes on the brand. A hundred percent. And it's that kind of awareness piece that's really important as well. We recently posted a TikTok where it was kind of a send up on one of the promotions we were doing at Woolworths and we referred to it as Woolies and all the comments were like, what's a Woolies? And because it was obviously international markets and some people were like, I have no idea what, who you are or what you're selling, but I'm into it. Great. Yeah. It's hilarious. (laughs) Mission accomplished. If we take your modelling experience into account, you've been part of the beauty industry for over a decade now. Over the last few years, what have been some of the biggest changes that you have seen within the beauty industry? Um, I 
probably say beauty standards have completely shifted. Yeah. Which I'm extremely grateful for. Yes. I think there's a lot more inclusion. Gone are the days of that sort of heroin chic. Yes. Skeletal vibe. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think just, you know, as an observer, particularly in fashion, there's a lot more inclusivity, which I really love. Mm -hmm. And what changes do you think we can expect to see over the next few years? The beautification of oral care. Yep, great. What a wonderful time to be sitting at the helm of an oral care brand. I think we can expect to see the beautification of oral care. We can expect to see. I think it's going to be a difficult time for a lot of people, to be honest. Yeah. we're entering an extremely difficult period. Um, First person to touch on it. Bravo. Yeah. Yeah. Economically, I think there's going to be a lot of businesses, small businesses specifically, that, you know, go out of business. Yep. I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity, but I think... A lot of people are going to struggle and yeah. I think everyone sort of needs to buckle up and get ready for a bit of a tumultuous time. Yeah. And I think it's important to give back in these times and mm-hmm. really recognise that a lot of people are doing it tough and a lot of people are going to struggle. An honest answer. I appreciate that. My final question, what is next for Jem? What is next for Jem? World domination. <laughs> We are headed to the UK uh, in a week. Yes. And we are launching Gem at Boots. That's very, massive. Very exciting. Yeah, which is awesome. What date does that happen? The launch goes live on June 20th. June 20th, just writing that down. <laughs> That's amazing. So we're launching Gem in Boots. They're going to be our kind of global health and wellness beauty destination for the product. It's our first foray into the international market. Yeah. Super proud of my team. I'm super proud of how far the brand has come in, honestly, three short years. Yeah. And I feel like this is kind of the first step in really permeating the global market and getting our brand ready for global expansion. Normally I end on that question, but how I've, I've got to go back because this is massive. <laughs> how did you, how did that pitch happen? How long has it taken from you saying, okay, I think the UK is on the horizon <sighs> honestly. to it actually happening? It happened pretty quick. Yeah. So we had an opportunity. I think we started talking to Boots last year in September. Yep. They basically gave us the okay, the confirmation in December. That is quick. It was six months ago. Yeah. I was like, this is 500 stores, right? Yeah. We're a small business. I was like on the phone to my manufacturers like, guys, this is not a drill. Put in emergency yeah. purchase. Order. We've airshipped all the stock. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been complete shambles. Yeah. We've made the deadline and we've made the launch, which I'm super proud of, but it happened very, very fast. Wow. I think honestly we were right brand, right place. The buyer is looking for new opportunities in the space. And I think that the UK consumer, as discussed, is quite similar to the Australian consumer. They're looking for better for you options presented in premium packaging. Mm. And every single person on Love Island keeps saying what they look for. Their type on paper, great teeth. <laughs> All of them. Hopefully not turkey teeth. No. <laughs> One would hope not. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that was that's the first time in five years that I've tacked a question on after the final question. Oh Worth my gosh, it. I wanted. Thank you. That was Georgia Danos, founder and CEO of Gem, which you can find on Instagram at gem.au. To read more, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share 
wherever other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me. The Glow Journal podcast would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is produced. We pay our respects to elders past and present.